Who can say where the killer roams, where the blood flows? It's slaying time. Slay away. Slay away. Hey Slayers, welcome to a very special bonus episode of Slay Away. I'm Enola Lugosi and I'm here to chat about lore, gore, true crime, and every kill in between. This episode is part of a continuing series of interviews this month celebrating pride with queer creators while exploring queer representation in horror. I'm joined today by Chandler Bullock. Chandler, welcome to Slay Away. Thank you so much. Really delighted to be here and excited to talk to you. Yeah, I'm so glad you're here. Um, We're gathered around my virtual campfire right now. Are you ready to chat about all things queer horror with me today? Yes, let's get queer. Let's get spooky. (laughs) Yes. Okay, perfect. So uh, Chandler is a horror writer, creator, and scholar based in Amsterdam. He's dedicated to exploring the philosophical and sociopolitical aspects of the horror genre. He is the host of the Beauty Horror Podcast as part of the Anatomy of a Scream pod squad. Yay. And you can find his written work at Ghoulish Media and Morbidly Beautiful with bylines at Film Cred and uh, We Are Horror Magazine. He is also the managing director at the acclaimed immersive horror escape room, the Amsterdam Catacombs, which I'm going to pick your brain about because it sounds awesome. And now I have a reason to go to Amsterdam. So (laughs) Um, as far as Chandler's role within the horror community, um, he is a mediator of healthy contemplation and conversation, as he says. And many of us um, uh, have flocked to horror out of pain and a need for companionship. I think that's more true than ever for um, just horror lovers in general and folks within the queer community. Uh, Chandler finds that it's important as he grows emotionally to help others along the way. And as a professional entertainer, he believes the best way to do this is through his writing, hosting, guest appearances and art and he hopes to help others experience the healing power of horror um within it as well so i think that's great i loved what you had to say um and i think that echoes true for a lot of us so again welcome i'm excited to get to chatting with you today yeah and i i loved how you made all of that sound like when i had it in my head i was like yeah i guess this is all right and when you say it out loud i'm like huh i (laughs) Yeah, yeah, I can get There's behind so that. There's so much work that we do, and <laughs> yeah, little right? by little. It's all important. Um, I will ask you just to kick things off. Tell me more about some of your projects and the work that you've done. Um, I saw you sent me some links to a few of your articles, which I'm going to dig into. But also tell us a little more about your podcast. Yes, sure. Yeah, the podcast is quite an interesting project for me. It's my most prominent and regular fixture right now next to the management job. So the Beauty of Horror podcast is a podcast in which I interview somebody within what I call the horror sphere. So that could be somebody who's a critic, journalist, filmmaker. They could be just a fan who really has something to say. And I'm interested in unpacking the kind of philosophical discussion about beauty that I'm doing in my own academic research, but I want to have a colloquial perspective on that. So I like to have a more casual conversation about it. And we pick a movie that they find beautiful. And then I kind of pick their brains as to why they find that film beautiful. And then I bring in some philosophy and aesthetics to mirror what they're saying or to show them where in academia, the type of discourse is is taking place that goes along with the types of films that we're talking about, or at least the themes of the film that we're talking about. 
Well, that's really interesting. I love that. And a lot of the folks I'm talking to this month are making me wish that I had studied film academically. <laughs> I took a few film classes, but um, I studied graphic design. <laughs> so um, still within the art sphere, but I wish I, I wish I had gone more into like film theory and some other things like that. And there's still time. I'm going to start taking some classes on my own. I think you're oh. all inspiring me. Um, well, how did you discover your love of horror? Uh, discovering it. That's an interesting one. So I've had a very yeah. kind of love-hate relationship with horror through most of my early years because <laughs> I was a very skittish and easily scared child. But I was also a very imaginative child. So things like nightmarish ghouls and werewolves and things were very real to me, just if you told me about them. I remember the first time somebody told me about a werewolf, I was around the age of five or so, and I was just in a, a, a convenience store that my mom worked at just sitting behind the register. And then one of my friends was there and they told me about a werewolf and I just had nightmares for days. It was terrible. And uh, so <clears throat> my mom was really careful with what she let me be around because she was just a little nervous that I was going to have some night terrors or something. But <clears throat> I still kept going back to the spooky stories, the macabre, you know, I read, you know, scary stories to tell in the dark, watched Are You Afraid of the Dark? Ah, Real Monsters. Beetlejuice was a film that we had taped off of television that I think I watched just weekly. It was that comfort film for me as a kid that if I needed to do something, my mom would just put on Beetlejuice and knew that I would just stare transfixed at all the beautiful colors and get caught up in the energy of the story. So I think my love of it came from a need for companionship like a lot of us did. I was a a bit of a an oddball, a bit of a weird kid, which a lot of queer kids were, you know, uh, I've just recently at, I'm now the age of 34. And just within like the last two years or so, I've started to really explore the parts of myself that I would now call queer, you know, and the parts of my identity that are genderqueer or uh, pansexuality, things like this, that I never gave a name before. I just thought I was me in a, in a very cis het kind of world. But then the more I developed the language for it and the more that I started to know other people who experienced uh, life in a very similar way, I started to understand it a bit better. But at the time as a kid, I just felt like I was being picked on for being quote unquote weird. And so horror for me was a place to see where monsters could thrive or where, you know, the nerd could actually be the hero sometimes. Most of the time, if it was a slasher, the nerd got killed. But, you know, uh, if it was a more existential kind of story or kids horror, for instance, kids horror loves to take the underdog and put them on top because they're smart and they can outsmart the, the villain in the situation. So I think that's where it started. And then from there, you know, you just go through your phases as you get a little darker in your own personality you go for darker stuff and so in my life according to what i've been feeling or what i've needed horror has always had a variety that has answered that call for me and, and kind of filled that space so it's just been an evolution ever since yeah i think um a lot of what you said echoes my own experience i'm also i'm like 36 now and <laughs> i didn't really start uh, identifying uh, with myself until my early 30s um, both in queer spaces and uh, gender fluidity and, and kind of, you know, who am I? Where am I? Uh, <laughs> yeah. What am I, I guess? Where do I fit? Where do I belong? And um, how do I exist in queer spaces? Because there's obviously some gatekeeping that tends to happen um, uh, when you don't identify as, I guess, the two primary <laughs> 
letters in the acronym. We'll just put it that way. So um, <laughs> is Beetlejuice the first uh, kind of horror-esque film that you saw? It's definitely like horror dark fantasy. It's one of my mm-hmm. favorites. It's not the first. No, it was just the one that I actually vividly remember. Apparently the first thing that I saw, I just don't remember it at the time. I was three years old and my dad saw... Stephen King's It when it was airing live on television. So oh, the miniseries. Oh, the miniseries, yeah. So, so I watched it, it used in to scare the crap out of me. Yeah, oh, it scares the shit out of me, yeah. Clowns uh, <laughs> freak me out. <laughs> and they didn't freak me out, so apparently it worked out pretty okay, because I don't know if... Did you watch the Bozo the Clown series at all back in the day? Do you recall that no, one? No, I didn't. I remember that clown episode of Are You Afraid of the Dark? I think Ryan Gosling <laughs> was in it or something like mm-hmm. that. And it also, I was like, nope, I'm good, because um, I have like a very traumatic experience with clowns in my oh, past, sorry. so that's part of the reason that I developed this like totally irrational fear of clowns. Um but uh, it was funny because you talked about how someone told you a werewolf story and it like freaked you out. But like, whereas mm-hmm. I'm the total opposite when I was like five, I think my grandmother introduced me to horror films. And the first horror film I ever saw was Silver Bullets, uh, Stephen Ooh, King's cool. Silver Bullet, the adaptation of that like uh, short novel that he wrote and um, which I think was Curse of the Werewolf. Yeah. So um and that for me so i was like i'm so into movie monsters and so i went down that path um as a very young kid and <laughs> just kind of um was always fascinated by them so it took me way later to really get into the monster stuff just because i really believed that they were out there like breathing on my windows and stuff um it's funny like with clowns so like i loved bozo so therefore it was a clown on tv for it so I was like, ah, it's just a clown on TV doing weird, very monstery clown stuff. And I was three, so I don't think I processed movies much at all at the time. But it's true. I've had a similar, I don't know what your experience has been with clowns, but I've also had some traumatic experiences at, you know, circuses with clowns. And so like in the real world, if I see a clown, it's not that I get the the abject terror, but if it's a professional clown and I'm in their environment, I'm very tense and I don't want to be around them. I don't, it's essentially just an extension of being bullied. Basically. I don't like being picked on for any reason. And so for clowns, I just feel like your job is to pick on me and I hate it. Right. That makes sense. And I think for me growing up, I got bullied a lot in school um, as well for just like random. I don't know. (laughs) I remember vividly, like um, I think my first day of seventh grade and I guess the way that I was dressed was just so different from everyone else with these like vibrant colors on and things like that so I got picked on a lot but I was being I was the most unique fucking person in that class I could tell you that Hell much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah I mean as far as uh, like horror films video games novels and things like that go are there any um, of those in particular that are standout favorites for you and I'm, I'm curious as to why in the context of, of of queer representation or just in general? Yeah, it could be in general and in queer representation, I would say, because um, I think different ones will hit you differently. And there may be a film that you didn't even realize was queer or had a lot of queer subtext until later, because that's how um, recently I was doing a lot of research on Alien. And I asked myself the question and then I Googled it and was like, is this film queer? Because it feels really queer. And I loved it and been watching it for you know, what, 25 years or something like that. And um, I'm like, holy shit, this film is super queer. (laughs) So um, and discovering that and then doing more research on the topic has been really interesting for me. So yeah, have at it in any um, lens you want to tackle it with. 
okay, sure. Yeah. Uh, you're right that, you know, as I look back in hindsight and I learn more and more about queer representation since, you know, I, I, it's such a recent development for me to even identify myself as queer. My viewpoint was skewed beforehand. I saw the world and just that the, these are movies and this is what's there. And the more you learn, the more you see. So for me, um, movie wise, one I come back to and anybody who's ever heard me speak <laughs> or see me on Twitter is not going to be surprised with this one. But I'd have to say the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre is a big one for me. Just I've even written about it myself of how Leatherface as a character represents for me a either a strong metaphor for trans identity or at the very least for a sense of gender queering or gender fluidity by his use of masks since they do refer to him as him and he does seem pretty comfortable with that but the masks that he chooses seems to always represent his mood or his function so what i've written in the past about masks is how they tend to well, they're masks. They mask people. So they tend to cover up the shame or the faces and identities of the people that wear them, like Jason and Michael Myers and, and other characters who are trying to either be anonymous or they just don't want to be seen because of shame. But Leatherface doesn't seem to have that in the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre. They do put that in there with the 2003 remake. They say that he's disfigured. But in the original film, he's just kind of customizing his attire and they seem to be a part of his identity since... For instance, there is no, you know, there's no womanly figure or matriarchal figure at all within that household, except for Leatherface. He's the one that when they're preparing all the dinner stuff, he's in the kitchen dressed up in this kind of old timey motherly's dress and outfit. And he's got this wig on and even makes these kind of like an old woman kind of noises to try to get everybody out of the kitchen. And he also at the dinner itself wears a different face, which is more made up nicer hair but he wears a very nice kind of church suit that you you would wear on a, on a sunday morning uh so that figure for me since i've come out or even before then just as i was figuring myself out i've been looking a lot at leatherface and seeing a lot there the strongest example for me though what i've loved the most i think out of any horror experience ever has been a video game actually and that would be silent hill 3 that one has so much to say about identity and experiencing the self in such a profound way that I think there are multiple readings that can be applied to it. Definitely queer coded in some instances, since you have a character who is being told that she is somebody other than who she feels to be. And they show a lot of dysphoria in that game. And that experience for me was something that I didn't even realize what it was, but I was definitely experiencing that. I just didn't have a word for it. And now when I look back on it and I think about how I relate to that game, a lot of the imagery in it, especially the enemies being a bit amorphous and just the lack of identity in the enemies and also the protagonist, Heather Mason, her response to these, these enemies is a very strong correlation to how I've also felt and responded to just looking at myself in the mirror, which mirrors play a lot in that game as well. I can talk about that way too long, but uh, that, that would be a big one for me, Silent Hill 3. Well, I love the Silent Hill series. Um, I remember playing it growing up as well, but I don't have super vivid memories about it, except for actually Silent Hill 2. 
and the like children in the elementary school mm-hmm. and stuff like oh, that. Yeah. That freaked me out. <laughs> um, but I was playing it while my brother was sitting next to me, like just with uh, his blanket ready to pull it over his eyes as needed, making me play the game instead of him. Because <laughs> I, I didn't have my own console until I was like 18. Because I was a girl, right? Um, so <laughs> I didn't get the console, the gaming consoles. Any novels? I don't know if you're much of a reader growing up. Uh, I think I had a few. I mean, I have novels now that I, I'm just not a good reader anymore, <laughs> honestly. Um, I have a hard time sitting down and uh, having my attention on one thing for a long period of time. So that's more my issue as well. I read a bit when I was younger, in fact, far more than I do now, but I've, I have ADHD. And so my brain just kind of pops off and goes in all kinds of different directions. Right. Yeah. So, it's it's kind of hard to sit down and read. It really um, is. I, I'm much better with audiobooks for that reason yes. at this point in my life. <laughs> um, how about queer storytellers? Do you have a favorite queer storyteller throughout um, your life or the anyone that's just uh their work has had a big impact on you Uh, yeah it's a very recent one but that makes a bit of sense considering my own recent like (laughs) looking back Uh, for me mike flanagan is one of my all-time favorites in that regard i feel the energy that he puts out into every piece of work that he puts into it and Every movie that I've seen from him or series has a heart and soul to it that is, it's not to say that you would need a queer perspective to get that, but the way he at least makes sure to fill that space sometimes with queer representation and to put the same heart and soul into those spaces, it means a lot to me, especially The Haunting of Bly Manor was one of those moments that just got to me more than I think it did for the average person. I wrote a piece on that as well. Just that, that piece was about trauma, but the whole storyline that they have with Danny and, um, I forget the Jamie, Jamie. Thank you. I knew it was a J name. So Danny and Jamie. It's come up a lot for me in the last like week. (laughs) I I would have forgot as well. Um, cause I'm just not great with remembering names, but I, um, yeah, I'd love to hear more about your perspective on, uh, the Haunting of Bly Manor. I did not like it the first time I watched it. Um, I knew I was going to have to watch it again, but I think because I'm such a huge fan of The Haunting of Hill House, um, not just the series, but um, Shirley Jackson's work in general, and I've seen every adaptation. I just wrote an article about it, actually. Um, and so, yeah, I'd love to hear more about uh, your take on it. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you're going to follow up Shirley Jackson, it's always a really tough follow to do, right? Uh, and uh, Hill House was such a good series, and it, all, every adaptation of it has been phenomenal. I think that with Bly Manor, I was just really taken aback by how poignantly we got a very modern gothic story. Normally, if you yes. get something that's yeah. kind of gothic, you're, you know, Hill House has a lot of great ghosts and scares and really goes to a lot of dark emotional places in a painful kind of way. But I think pain's portrayed a little differently in Bly Manor. It's a little quieter and that, you know, for some people that isn't the most entertaining thing in the world to consume. Um, But for me, I guess it's just, I have a lot of that internal quiet emotion. So I mean, not always, I I have ADHD. It's not always quiet, but uh, the way Danny responded to a lot of things I could relate to and, that's when I started to notice 
that not only did I feel not straight, I also felt like, why am I relating to the sapphic story so well in a way that I really felt it, like really, really strongly that the bond that those two had just seems not just natural to me, but just perfect and it like destined. And I started to explore that a little bit more. So I, I think I could attribute my contemplations on the haunting of Bly Manor to helping me realize uh, that I'm gender fluid because of just how I feel. Uh, Silent Hill 3 really contributed to that as well. Um, more on that in the article. If you go to Gaily Helpful, that's where the article is going to be coming out in the next com- couple of weeks, I think. But for Bly Manor, it was equal parts painful and terrifying for me. I I think it's that aspect of trauma and the fact that every character is connected in some way emotionally is why it had such an effect on me. So that's something that I've experienced throughout my whole life is that ripple effect, you know, that when somebody's having a problem in their life, whether you feel that it's your problem or that it's affecting you or not, you hold on to that and you carry that with you and it does change your life. You just don't realize at the time that maybe some of the behavior that you're exhibiting to others is due to your relationship with somebody else. And if you don't explore those things and you don't unpack those things, you don't have a very healthy relationship with yourself. Therefore you can't really have healthy relationships with others. And that part of the way ghosts and trauma worked in Bly Manor really hit me pretty hard. I agree that Mike Flanagan, I think, is a fantastic storyteller. And I think that the work that he did with The Haunting of Hill House gave him a better ability to write queer characters. Um, Mm -hmm. And then if you look at Kate Siegel, for example, she's bisexual um, and that's his wife. Right. And she's in both of those. Um, And at least I think that the character of Theo has always really resonated with me, even back when it was super queer coded to when Mike Flanagan brought, you know, Theo out in The Haunting of Hill House to being yeah. a fully formed lesbian character, which was great. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess, are, are there any characters in particular, uh, queer characters in horror <laughs> that you've identified with that have had a deep impact on you? So in horror, I'm still... So the thing, and I've, I've listened to the first interview you had with this, and I do have to agree with the sentiments put there, that representation for queer characters in horror is either non-existent or really thin and poor usually (laughs) so if you don't know what you're looking for it's really hard to see it unless it has that a character has a very clear strong correlation with you my strongest connection that i can think of is a little outside of the realms of horror uh, but it's a character that a lot of people have found disturbing for whatever reason Uh, do you know him in the powerpuff girls Oh no, because I'm I'm just gonna say I'm anti cartoon. Oh, fair, that's fair. I mean, I grew up with it as a child. <laughs> um, but... Part of it is uh, what uh, one of the things that I uh, struggle with is um, dyslexia, and I had eye therapy uh, as a child, and so cartoons, for whatever reason, um, often will make me physically ill okay. to watch. Okay, well, so I have a legitimate reason. Okay, no, no. But there are some that I try to watch. Like I've tried to watch. Um, I did watch Ghost in the Shell and things like that. Um, but some like regular cartoons, not as much. <laughs> yeah, and I can imagine Powerpuff Girls is going to be one of those. I can imagine that might uh, trigger that a bit because it is definitely a, a very fast-paced, colorful, and 
a lot of line work and stuff in that. Right, that's um, part of it. It's yeah. whatever, for whatever reason, certain cartoons will just. Uh, I'm like, I can't watch this. <laughs> I want to, but I can't. Well, <clears throat> just to give a quick description, then, uh, him is one of the big bad villains of the series. So the Powerpuff Girls is set up in a kind of Power Rangers y kind of way, where you have the, what villain are they dealing with this episode? And if they're not dealing with a villain, they dealt with more like, you know, young girl problems, but being superheroes on top of it. So, you know, or just young child problems, too. Just like, what is it like to be picked on? And how do you deal with that if you're considered to be the the wimp of the group? Uh, But with him, him was the most unique character they had in the series, because unlike all the others that represented some sort of very clearly political part of society. Now, granted, I think him is a very clear political thing now that I've looked back on it. But as a child, if you don't know what you're looking at, you just see this very interesting devil looking character. It's very thin, but he has these metallic claws. He has the devil's face of so that kind of goatee looking face, but he wears his, well, actually his feet are kind of in the shape of high heels. And he has like this kind of like, I don't even know how you would call that, but like this fluff around his neck that looks like a really nice frilly collar. And he speaks really, mm, yes, to everybody. Everybody's a bit freaked out by him because him, it's, it's a genderless character. You're really confused when you see him. There's a lot of masculine qualities. There's a lot of feminine qualities and all of them are weaponized. For this character, the whole purpose of the character is to serve as this ultimate evil, this devil like character that just kind of gets into your psyche and messes with your head. I really latched onto that character at the time. I think I was probably 13 or 14, and I was just taken aback by how wonderful. I thought him was. I wanted him action figures. I wanted him on things. They didn't make a lot of that stuff because we were talking about a genderqueer character in the late 90s and early 2000s. It was, you know, it was meant to disturb you, but there were people like myself who really identified with the character. And my mom thought that was very strange. Um, But I still think that him is one of the most interesting and disturbing characters of a non-horror realm that has been created, especially in children's entertainment. So it's made a really big, or he, or I don't know. I don't know how to classify him has made a very big impact on me in that way. Um, as far as horror goes, I suppose then it comes back to Silent Hill 3 for me. That's still the strongest would be Heather Mason, just because she's dealing with the fact that she is the... She's the character from the first game, or if you've seen the film, she's also the same character in the film. I think they named her Sharon in the film, but Cheryl in the games, where she has the, she's like the reincarnation of a girl that was sacrificed in Silent Hill, who's destined to be their god. And so, but at the end of Silent Hill, her father saves her, stops the cult, moves on. In part three, they skip ahead. Two has its own story. In part three, you have Heather Mason is the new identity for Cheryl. So it's kind of a witness protection situation. She's a bit older. She's not too aware of what happened to her as a child, but the cult comes back and they try to reclaim her. So she is walking around as a young teenager with this burden of not only do you have a different identity and name than what you thought you had, but you are, you are also the harbinger of our God. You are literally holding another person inside of you. 
And so whenever she looks into mirrors, she can see this character, Alessa, but she doesn't accept it. She rejects it. So the whole story is about her coming to terms with that and trying to accept the duality of her existence while also rejecting what the cult wants to do with her because she needs to take her own initiative and claim her identity for herself. And that has always been just... Yes, yes, yes. It's been one of the most affirming stories that I've ever experienced. And I don't think there's a day that goes by that I'm not thinking about the aesthetics of that game or the story of that game. Oh, yeah, it's a fantastic game. It's definitely um, I think I've only played part of three. But I like that you keep harkening back to Silent Hill 3. Yeah, sorry. I have <laughs> and then to. I didn't I didn't mind the adaptation uh, that much. Um I liked it. Yeah. I, I thought it was pretty I yeah, I thought it was pretty good actually. And then of course they brought it into my favorite game, Dead by Daylight. Um, <laughs> with those characters. Hell so, yeah. Um yeah, and I get to play Cheryl anytime that I want to. Um or Sharon. I mean, it's interesting because she starts as uh, she's Sharon in um the first adaptation and then i think it's just an identity change she's also been known as cheryl as heather uh, i think it has to do with running and trying to hide but yeah it's interesting um how about examples of queer representation in horror i know you kind of talked about this a little bit with um going back to what's come up in uh previous episodes mm-hmm. um but are there any good examples that you can think of um of queer representation in horror like i think i can always think of lots of bad examples but for me <laughs> yeah. personally uh, talking about a character i identify with is ellen ripley because for me that's a non-binary character and um i feel that i am gender fluid but non-binary is how i tend to identify so um and the fact that that film um really breaks a lot of ground in terms of gender nonconformity, which i think is great so yeah, I'd love to hear what you think in terms of what films are what films or even um, you know stories get queer representation right or just do it well. Right, right. I I never even considered Alien that way, so I'm definitely gonna have to rewatch that and check it out with that perspective because the moment you said it, it clicks. <laughs> I can't wait for yeah. you to hear the episode. It's coming out this month, so because okay. um, we just did a review on the film. Okay. Yeah, that sounds really, really insightful. I'm looking forward to that. Uh, I think that obviously if you get queer filmmakers or at least make it about queer spaces, it tends to work more or less okay, depending on how stereotypical we get into a a story. So uh, another recent example would be Knife Plus Heart, I think did a really good job showing. um, I mean, this is it takes place in the 1970s, so it's a little detached from how a lot of the world would be today, but also it really highlights how a lot of the world has not changed at all. So it shows a queer world very well in that film, uh, specifically the gay pornography scene in the 70s in France. But I did feel that their representation of trans characters and gay characters was full of tropes without being full of stereotypes. So I really appreciated that story. Obviously, there's also the character Josh and Freaky. I think that that was, for once, you have a slasher film where the gay guy doesn't just get unceremoniously taken down in a horrible, violent, and mean-spirited kind of way. Here's one that I don't think a lot of people would think about, but I'm going to say Jason Voorhees is actually a bit of representation that I appreciate. It comes back to that idea of masking. 
you have a character who has a connection with his mother who has raised him a very specific way. She's sheltered him. She's tried to keep him safe. But that's the kind of damage that a lot of loving but misguided parents can do, especially if they have a queer child and they don't know they have a queer child. In his case, he does have a physical deformity and he's also, um, you know, mentally uh, handicapped as well. But Apart from those things, I've always had a bit of a queer reading with him, just seeing how he's been portrayed as a small boy and also seeing his responses to particular situations throughout the franchise. More specifically, I would say in Friday the 13th Part 2, the way he responds to Jenny when she starts to dress up as his mother, you see a softness and a vulnerability of the character that, although it's fleeting, it's always kind of spoken volumes to me. And I can relate to that rage that when you see people that are quote unquote normal, I hate that word, but from his perspective, I can imagine that's the word that would kind of come to mind. I had that a lot too, that you look from your position and you look out and you see everybody having their easy heterosexual relationships and their easy time with their identity and, and who they are. And you're asking questions. They look at you like you're very strange for asking those questions. And then you just stop asking, but you do kind of resent it because you're conflicted. The anger that can come from that, and especially if you feel that you're being teased and bullied in the process can be quite potent. And one of the early stages for me as a horror fan was going to slashers and kind of getting that catharsis from seeing these same types of kids being punished basically for their transgressions. Whereas truly the, the transgression that they're trying to show is, well, this villain is different and you should, you know, be on the side of the people who are getting murdered because they're getting murdered and that that's a bad thing. And that's true. Getting murdered is a bad thing, but we are talking about fiction here. So I, I think fiction is a great place to do a different and more subtle metaphor that uses more extreme storytelling methods to get it across and and for me that that's been a very strong part of slashers especially stuff like friday the 13th maybe an oddball one but that's one that i think uh, could use a little bit more of a reading in in queer theory to see uh if we can unpack uh, jason just a little bit more especially since we do have characters like angela in sleepaway camp that is a, a bit more clearly stated although i would say a little bit more problematic in how it's been put together of course <laughs> Yes, um, there's a lot of differing opinions about Angela. The thing is that um, I think at the end of the day, we say that bad queer representation is when a queer person is a villain, but not just that they're a villain. Queer people can be villains, that we're humans. But um, the problem lies in being a villain because of your queerness. Yes, exactly. Um, and that's how I think to explain it to people in the simplest terms of why it can become problematic is that in that film in particular, at the end, we discover that Angela is a transgender character and that her transness was actually forced on her by her aunt. Um, this was not a choice for her. So then it becomes even more muddied and difficult to understand um and i guess in a way they're trying to say well the reason that she's acting out is uh because it was forced on her not necessarily because she is trans um so it's it's kind of difficult to to understand and then as we get into the other sleepaway uh camp um films um angela has fully transitioned and is still a killer so yeah um 
it's <laughs> there's a lot to unpack there. Um, and I don't think I don't necessarily think that it's a bad film, but I do think that, that it has some things about it that are problematic. Yeah, I think, like you said, the word muddy, I think, is the best word for that particular film franchise, because I can see an empowerment in there as well, especially once she's fully transitioned and just she's owning it in the other films of like, right. In the uh, other films, <laughs> she is coming to her own. She's very confident yeah. as who she is. Um, so I think the messaging is maybe a little bit better, but she's still <laughs> homicidal. So um, maybe it really didn't have anything to do with her transness in the first place. Which then I think that's fine. You know, if you, if like you said, uh, the poor representation indeed is if you're trying to make a monster out of the queer person because they you know decided to express themselves basically uh, I, I haven't seen it but i've also heard a lot of discourse on dress to kill that that has a very similar I haven't problem seen that to either it. um i think it's one that's on my list but it's not one that i've watched okay well what i've heard from is that basically it suffers from you know psycho syndrome where basically you have a character who the expression of their queerness is murder so it's just kind of like, well, of course they're murderous because, well, let's explain it. You won't understand, but they're very different. And it's just not, you know, that's the part where it's like, we're, we're, you know, look, we don't, we're not experiments. We're not some science experiment on a slab here. And it's okay to get into the psychology of a character. But when you're doing so to piece apart to say they are evil because of who they are, that's where the problem starts to, you know, that's where it lies the most for me. I love a good evil queer character just because they want to be evil. You know, if they have a legitimate reason, either due to trauma or because, well, you know, screw it. I'm I'm a bad person. Well, you know, queer people can be bad people, too. So I'm totally fine with that, you know, but you've got to toe the line a little bit and figure out how to make sure that you're not monstrously othering the person based on their identity. Exactly. <laughs> so I think it's um, when we're trying to get people to even understand what queer representation is. Yeah. So, um, well, jumping into if you want to talk a little bit about the Hayes Code, which um, sort of we went away from that in the 1960s, but there's tons of films. And I know I gave a list of about 55 uh, queer coded films through early history um, where the Hayes Code applied to now where um, things have changed quite a bit. So, and I think they continue to get better. I think we've seen a lot of horror films um, that are queer horror films within the last like five years um, that are doing a way better job when it comes to queer representation. I mean, do you believe that queer characters are still often antagonists or um, afterthoughts added to a film to meet some kind of diversity quota or is it getting better? I think it's a bit of both. You know, I do think it's getting better. The more we have studios that are a bit more open to creative freedom for the voices that are making the films. So if you have larger studios, they have a tendency to have their agendas and they're trying to meet a particular quota. So in the effort to make things more, quote unquote, equal <laughs> for, for their feeling. It's really just trying to make it palatable is kind of what their feeling is. So they just want to make sure it's easily marketable. So if you were to focus on 
one perspective too strongly or have representation in a way that they feel is just too much, then maybe, you know, they're afraid you might alienate your heterosexual or a cis contingency. But there's it still happens, of course. You still have your tokenized gay characters. You still have people who are turned into monsters based on queerness. But I would say a lot of filmmakers nowadays have kind of taken that punk rock kind of attitude and looked at the Hayes Code and just went, I like what you were doing there and let's make sure that it never happens again. So now, it, whereas you may have a lot more um, subtle inclusion of, of queer coding in characters, like I look at the list here that you have and I think one of the most prominent or famous examples of a Hayes Code queer coded film would be The Bride of Frankenstein. And when you do have the the relationship between Frankenstein and, and Pretorius, it could be seen as just, you know, a mentor and the and his ward. But knowing James Wells' background and knowing the types of characters that, you know, he couldn't write, uh, it, it stands to reason that he would slip some of that in there just to get his own representation out. Or maybe it just slips out because that's who he is. You know, you, you put yourself into your stories. Um, right. And it I said that, that um, from everything I read about James Whale, that he was an openly queer person. And that was like, it's just not happening <laughs> at the time. No, um, the time. And the no. more people became aware of his queerness because he was not shy about it. Um, they, you know, it's said that that led to the end of his career. But um, I think that he did a lot of great work in the meantime. Uh, some people even mentioned that maybe some of that is in Frankenstein as well. Um, a little bit of queer coding within the monster. Um, uh, but, you know, I don't know. I, I could see it in Bride of Frankenstein, but I'm not so sure about his other films with like the Invisible Man and things like that. So, yeah, I mean, identity is definitely portrayed in those films, especially Frankenstein itself. If you look at the, the monster in that one, that there I can see it if we're talking queerness from an identity perspective. But if you're talking from the, you know, from a sexuality perspective, then I'd agree that Bride of Frankenstein is probably the most overt example of this yeah i would agree i would definitely agree well i guess is there anything else for representation wise that um you really wanted to talk about or bring up today i was really just thrilled to talk about it in general uh so <laughs> when it came I, I was really just curious to how we were gonna go about this, this journey i will say that there are other indie films i think that's where the space is most predominantly rife with very interesting and very good queer representation. Oh, Another yes, really I would agree. Like, have you seen the film Braid by any chance? No, I haven't seen Braid. Okay, this one is, it's a very weird film that's hard to describe, so I won't even try to do it. <laughs> but there, because it's also one of those films that if the less you know, the more interesting it is to watch, uh, or the more it might irritate you, depending on your perspectives <laughs> when you're watching it. It depends on your tastes, of course. But there, there's at least one character in the film that breaks down gender norms in in how she behaves, and how she dresses, and and there's a bit of a meta narrative in the film as well. And that's the kind of stuff that I think that we have nowadays that we never could have had in the past because of things like the Hayes Code. I think that the remnants of the Hayes Code are still there. And 
it's in the indie sphere that people are experimenting a little bit more and actually being able to tell more subtle stories with queer characters and queer coded uh, storylines. So in a way we're getting better, but you know, of course you, you, you still have pushback. So I know there's a big conversation in the book sphere right now about should we use trigger warnings and content warnings in books so she put them on the back of a book so people know if there are particular elements to it that would make it possibly triggering or you just don't want to read that right now as we kind of do with parental guidance stuff for films and there's a whole pushback on that but i do feel that the arguments that i've seen pushing against it are essentially the same types of perspectives that created the Hayes code to begin with you know it's people who are claiming oh but if you put all the trigger warnings on it you're essentially bringing back stuff like the Hayes Code because you're telling people what they can and can't do and put it in a film or in a book when that's not the case. What we say with trigger warnings and content warnings is just so people can make up their minds for themselves of whether they can handle that material right now and whether they should. Because I don't know if you've had it, but I know I've had it plenty of times that you think you're going to watch something really, really fun and it ends up bumming you out real hard yeah. and you weren't prepared for <laughs> Definitely. it. Definitely. It would be nice to not have to deal with that, right? <laughs> like oh okay well there's a scene in there that i um i had to like stop the film and walk away yeah (laughs) like i'll come back to it but i just need a break um and that happens a lot with me with different television series as well some series Mm. like the handmaid's tale for example is extremely intense and um uh as someone who uh even though i identify as non-binary you know it does Mm -hmm. it, it uh the material affects me um, and I would say that it's, it's, it's difficult to watch and I, I could watch an episode and have to take a three month break. I get that. That's very intense material. So if you even have like the smallest relation to it, I can imagine it's going to dredge up a lot. <laughs> well, gosh, Chandler, thank you so much for taking the time out, uh, to come and chat with me today and, um, you know, talk a little bit about queer horror. It's always a good time. <laughs> it's a great topic, and I think it's an interesting one, and um, one I'll continue to research. Um, you know, queer representation in horror as new films come out, and then exploring it within older films as well, um, in places where I may not uh, have known that it existed. Um, but yeah, it's something I'm excited to keep diving into, and hopefully, if you're into it, you'll come back sometime and do a film review with us. Oh, I'd be totally into that. Yeah, yeah. And I've loved the seeing the research that you've been doing on queer horror. It's been just really thorough and really good work, too. So uh, oh, it's been you. a pleasure to be <laughs> a part of this process since, you know, I'm also trying to uh, do that kind of research personally, but also more for my own work as well to get that as part of my uh, my knowledge base. Let's put it that way. So, uh, yeah, this has been a great help and uh, I'm really proud and, and honored to have been a part of it. Oh, thank you so much. Well, I'm glad that you were able to 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 be part of the project. And um, yeah, I can't wait to have you back. Oh, for sure. Can't wait either. <laughs> Thanks for gathering around the campfire, listeners. Come Slay Away with us next time. And be sure to follow at Slay Away Radio on Twitter and Facebook.